Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 153. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we discuss a rise in digital archaeology adoption, photographic metadata, and some mapping stuff. Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Paul, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good today. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing pretty good. For only the second time since you've been co-hosting this show, we're in the same room together in New York City. Yeah, this is second only... <laughs> face-to-face meeting ever in what three years three and a half years now i've been doing this yeah i think it's gonna be almost four this summer by the end of the summer because they started around that time frame yeah i think so and the the crazy thing is the first time was on the national mall in washington dc rachel and i were at the triple a's yep and now my wife and i are visiting my brother-in-law and we're traveling around in an rv as we said many times and we're out we wanted to come to new england before we head back to nevada and my brother-in-law is leaving here. He lives in Manhattan. He's leaving here in the summertime. So we want to visit him and have him take us around the city for a little bit. So now we're in New York City at the beginning, well, I guess mid, uh, mid-April, mid mid to almost end of April. And and you're not too far from here. So we said, well, let's hook up and record the podcast. Yeah. In fact, I'm just about six feet from here. <laughs> <laughs> you are exactly six feet from me. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. We're in our hotel room here. We're both vaccinated and, and mm-hmm. you know, so we're all... We're all safetyed up, so it's pretty cool. It's so crazy being a podcaster and being in the same room with people you're podcasting. I just don't have that experience even very often doing this for like nine years. Yeah, it's really funny because, you know, we've been doing it for a long time now, and I've been getting more comfortable with it as we go along. I've especially found it more comfortable now that we have the video feed on Zencaster when we we talk to each other because I'm just really stuck on a lot of the little kind of cues that you get, the the things that you miss in terms of like eye contact, yep. nodding, all that stuff that when it was a purely audio format between us, I missed. And so I would step on you speaking <laughs> a lot of the time. I probably still do that a fair amount, yeah. but yeah, the the little back and forth. You have to wait a moment. Are they going to say something? <laughs> okay, now I can make my interjection. And so it's it's refreshing anytime that you get the yeah. chance to uh, to to see somebody's face. And so it's been helpful on the video ones. But here mm-hmm. now we're doing this live. And I remember that first time that we met, it was the first time I was actually feeling comfortable recording because even though I I had topics I wanted to talk about, and you mm-hmm. know we had what I thought were some decent recordings before that, that was the first time that all these cues that I would normally get in a conversation with somebody right. who were there. And so we just had a nice chit chat back then about museums and about some of the different displays that we saw. Yeah, I think so. And uh, yeah, that, that was good. I like that. Uh, we should put yeah. that in the show notes for anybody who wants to go back and maybe compare. Indeed. Whoever's editing this, go back and find the random episode from three years ago. I have no idea what title it is. Mm. <laughs> we'll find it and, yeah. and try to put it in there. Yeah. So... 
we don't really have a topic on the slate today, so we're just going to kind of chat for a little while because this, again, doesn't happen very often. So uh, we don't have an interview or anything like that. But I do think I want to bring something up. I've been, as everybody knows, I work with WildNote. And the interesting thing is, you know, I because of various things that just all came to play, WildNote was given some business advice to not back away from archaeology from a from a client sense, but back away from the sales of of WildNote to archaeologists only because, and this was about a year and a half ago, only because, to be honest, archaeologists weren't the primary customer at the time because archaeologists weren't biting on it. I was in charge of sales for archaeologists, and either I'm a terrible salesman or people are we're just not ready for something like WildNote. And I think it's probably a combination of the two. And they just they just weren't biting enough. But the biologists and wetland scientist people and, and the environmental folks, they were all coming on board in droves in WildNote. So the business advice mm. that the CEO got was, listen, focus on what's working, build that up, and then go back to the other verticals and you can focus on those. And they weren't turning anybody away that wanted archaeology, but they certainly weren't going out to conferences and seeking that out anymore. But that's all started to turn around in the last few months. Interesting. Yeah. And I don't know what the deal is. I don't know if it's COVID related. People are now used to, a little more used to, especially archaeologists, the remote work and digital things and things mm-hmm. like that. But we've had people contacting us left and right, and we're onboarding people left and right for archaeology. Yeah, that's a little bit of a surprise to me. I mean, maybe it is the this comfort with the uh, the digital that suddenly... Yeah. But when you said that you were having troubles you know, selling to archaeologists, I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. Because my experience, and again, this is academic archaeology, not CRM, but I, I've always gotten the sense that archaeologists tend to be uh, kind of cheapskates, yeah. you know? So we have lots of yeah. stories of, of, you know, projects that, that you're fed beans and rice for you know, months <laughs> on end, uh, horror stories, or, you yeah. know, I've lived in caves and <laughs> right. Yeah, right. spider and scorpion infested caves. <laughs> Indeed. You know, I've had other ones, digs that have been on that are really plush, but it doesn't surprise me. So anyhow, my, my experience, you, you were intimating there that archaeologists are not ready for mm-hmm. for the tech. And uh, I don't doubt that that's true, but then I would think that there's the other half of it where that those who are ready for it probably look at the price tag and go, oh, I can do that myself. Yes, we get that a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and a lot of companies, to be honest, are already doing something themselves. Yes. The, the need and the desire for some sort of digital recording method, we're beyond people saying, is digital worth it? I think at this point, for most firms of any size, they know that digital recording and at least digital storage of data is something that they have to do in 2021, even 2020 or 2019. Because when I was actively talking to people all the time, a lot of them did have their own, how, how should I say, ways of doing that. Even if it's even if it's a fillable PDF, which, my God, that's not data. So stop doing that <laughs> if you're doing it. Give me a call. But even if it's a fillable PDF, that's still better than bringing reams of paper out into the field, right? Yeah. It's, it's still a step up from that. So people have had their own solution for, you know, for a number of years. Google Forms, you know, whatever the case may be. But paying a third party to essentially design your survey forms and manage the platform and all the stuff that's entailed with that has been something that archaeologists are reluctant to do. In certain circumstances, like Esri, GIS, they do, of course, mm-hmm. pay for those things because not very many people could code their own Esri you know, on their computers and then have a GIS and, and use it. But forms just seem super easy. Yeah. you know, So it seems like a no-brainer for them to just do it on their own. 
Yeah. Have you seen any kind of change or uptick in other fields looking at wild note in the same time span in the recently? Uh, well, archaeology and wetland stuff has just continued to grow. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not too plugged into that on the wild note side, mm-hmm. but I know from their conversations because I do see the reports of the two statistics that software companies look at are is is monthly recurring revenue and annual recurring revenue. Mm-hmm. And those two have continued to rise. And since I know every archaeology company that's come on board, I know they're not responsible for it. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, we've had an increase in that stuff. There's been an increase in the amount of work they're doing. Some of our some of our longstanding clients are just getting more licenses too because mm-hmm. they've got just more work, you know, that they're really? doing. Is there a general uptick in the amount of work that's that's happening now for CRM? For CRM, I don't know if there's a general uptick or if it's just making up for the lack of work in 2020. Hmm. You know, a lot of projects were put on hold. Mm -hmm. And so the projects that were slated for, and we're talking like construction projects and and other things, a lot of ones that were on slate for 2021 are still happening. And the ones that were put on hold for 2020 that haven't happened yet are also happening. Mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, yeah, it seems like there's, it seems like everybody I talk to is super busy and it doesn't seem to matter where they're at. They're just super busy and hmm. they're, and they're, they've got work coming out their ears. So yeah, well. yeah. And people are starting to look for solutions, you know, which is, which is good for us. Cause one thing I've been working on the last few weeks pretty rigorously, cause my work with wild note has always been as a consultant and, you know, they contact me when they have an archeology span person, you know, join them and they have a question or they, they'll put me on sales calls to help speak the language to them. Cause most of our salespeople are not archeologists, of course. Mm-hmm. And now though, I've been working a lot on like the Utah archeology span forum exports and I'm hearing sirens. I hope you guys can hear it too. Usual New York experience right there. Anyway, yeah, it's really cool that we're getting a new client that's working in a state that we haven't typically had people working in yet, which is a little bit surprising because Utah is right next to Nevada and we got plenty of people doing that. This fire truck is just like really cranking right out the window. There you go. <laughs> Paul's holding his microphone up to the window. That's awesome. <laughs> that's straight up New York for you guys. The Utah forms are really interesting because they're like the long, they're called the IMAX form. Well, now they call it the Utah State Archaeology form, but it's based on what was called the IMAX form, the Intermountain Antiquities Computer System form. That was shared by all the Intermountain states in like in the desert west. So Wyoming on down to Colorado with Nevada, Utah, and maybe like southern Idaho and in eastern Oregon, I think, maybe used IMAX forms. I can't remember. Mm. But either way, they all had the same form for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And then the states started to diverge a little bit. And back in like 2011 or 12, I think it was 12, there was a short form that was used for you know, like really small sites, sites that didn't have a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And Nevada basically converted to just the short form and you had to basically kind of do everything on your own. But Utah still has this whole part A, part B, part C, part D, big form with all these things to fill in. And the point is, it's really cool that a firm trusts us to, you know, we had the forms already, but we didn't have the agency exports coded, hard coded in. And gotcha. now we're hard coding in the agency exports for them, which means we'll have it for everybody. So... Mm-hmm. It's just really cool that stuff is starting to move again in that direction, and we're we're able to start putting that stuff together again. I'm kind of curious when you said that there's a lot of work, people are really, really busy. I wonder if some of the uptake isn't because people have warmed to using digital tools, but because they're looking at the amount of work that they have, and they're like, I can't, I don't have yeah. the time to roll this yeah. my own and do it. So it's just, a, it's a convenience factor. I mean, yeah. convenience is for most, for most software, Convenience is the the, the killer app. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's how you make a software, right? You look at a problem to solve and you solve the problem. Yeah. And that's convenience, right? And so definitely. In fact, we had a client and I, 
I know this company and I know they're everywhere. They're a massive engineering firm, but they, I think their archaeology offices are a little smaller. Mm-hmm. They have lots of them, but they're a little smaller. And one of those offices, this is another weird idiosyncrasy with selling to selling WildNote to clients. All these individual offices for these large firms, it's not the firm we're send, selling to. It's the office we're selling to. So we're selling like five licenses to one office where in reality, if the firm had bought it, we could sell them 500 licenses and the entire organization could get it. Mm. But it seems like these little, these little regional offices have their own budgets and are mm-hmm. able to do their own thing. And they're not really talking to corporate about this stuff. They're hmm. just getting whatever they need for them when they need it, which is a little bit frustrating for us. I wouldn't say frustrating. We're happy to help. But from a management standpoint, it can get a little confusing because we have had different offices from the same organization basically sign up for WildNote. And then when we look at our company list, we'll see the same company in there like four times because four of their offices have WildNote independently. Mm-hmm. And at some point we're like, okay, what do we do when these guys say they want to bring everything together under one invoice? You know, if they ever do that, and then we're going to have some interesting things with the data to figure out right, right. so we can bring all that together. But yeah, it's interesting. And this, I, I was saying this one firm, I know they're big. We have the forms that they need for the state that they're working in. And yet still, really, the only thing that they came to us for was photo logs. Photo logs are such a pain for people. Putting those together, managing mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with the, the sorting and the order and all that stuff. When you really look at it, you waste a lot of time ordering photos and putting oh, yeah. them on a log and making sure everything looks good. If you can just take them, take the photos on a device and keep all the information in one form, and then multiple people can do that, and you can bring it all together into one log, I mean, you save hours and hours of time for each site. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. When I was a photographer on projects, I used to, you know, again, I've said this plenty of times, mm-hmm. it was back in the film days. Yeah. So I would record everything, which camera I did, what oh, yeah. kind of film, what the aperture was, what mm-hmm. the the direction I was facing, what the what the shutter speed was, just and I had to write all that down. <laughs> by hand in a paper log. And then at night I would go and enter that into an Excel spreadsheet and just so I'd have it there electronic form. I don't know that it ever mattered for anybody, but it was, you know, after a a day, it was half an hour or an hour Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, updating the photo logs. Yeah. 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 You just sparked a big question I've got, which I think could go in a number of directions and we'll do that on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. 
Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we're back with episode 153 of the Architect Podcast. Live edition, at least for Paul and I. Sorry, you guys, you're not live. But, you know, at least we are. <laughs> <laughs> so you were mentioning at the end of the last segment, and this just... It started pinging all kinds of bells and whistles in my head when you said this. But you said back when you were, you know, working on the sites and you're looking at the photo log and all the things that you were recording about photos. And you mentioned, you know, film speed, aperture, you know, shutter speed, stuff like that. Yeah. And I've done that, right? Mm -hmm. I've done that too. Really early on in my archaeology career when I did some stuff with, you know, some SLRs, you know, and, and some DSLRs, we would also write that stuff down. And then really quite quickly, I moved, you know, we moved to like point and shoots and that stuff became we just stopped writing it down. Right. Right. Even though it was still recorded with the photo and the metadata, we just kind of stopped writing that stuff down. But it made me think like you even alluded to it at the end of the segment. Like you're not sure if that was really actually that useful. I know photographers like legit photographers when they're doing artsy type stuff, weddings, things like that, they'll, they'll, they probably don't do this anymore because the camera records it, but you know, they look at aperture and shutter speed probably so they can say and learn for next time. Mm-hmm. Well, this aperture and the shutter speed got me this kind of shot. I'll, I'll know to use that next time. Right. But really for an archeology span project, what does that get you writing that stuff down? Who cares? Yeah. So I would write that stuff down, not because I thought that it was archeologically interesting, but because I was habituated yeah. to doing that from taking art shots. You know, so I would take four, five, ten right. shots of the same subject, make minor changes to it, but record each one so that I knew that, you know, that whatever had some effect and I could then correlate that to learning about how I could take a better shot next time. Right. You know, I was I was a, a student. I, I wasn't professional sure. doing those things. So it was it was entirely a learning exercise, but I was habituated to doing that. All that stuff now, when you do take your pictures with uh, digital cameras, be they point and shoots or DSLRs or mirrorless, whatever, it records all that stuff. That's mm-hmm. all the metadata in there. You don't need to record that separately. The important thing that I recorded when I would be dig photographer was, you know, what the subject is. Yeah. What, depending on how the recording system was, what locus right. it was, what level it was, what trench it was, what unit it was, what building it was, what room it was. <laughs> you know, again, that all depends on what yeah. the project is. What direction you're facing and what time. Yeah. Now, the time is being recorded automatically by the digital cameras, sure. but with the film cameras, it certainly wasn't. Mm-hmm. Unless you had the little overlay and nobody wanted that. Not in your photo, right? No. Yeah. So that stuff is extremely useful. That's the stuff yeah. that you go back when you're writing up the report and you're looking at it and you can't remember. Yeah. There's, there's no way, especially, you know, if you're looking at black and white contact sheets, you know, yeah. that, there's no way you'd be able to tell is this, no. this room or that room. Or, yeah. You know, but that stuff still pays to take very good notes. And, and that all makes sense. And like I said, I've seen people write down a lot of that extraneous, not extraneous, but you know, that extra photo information when they're using film or something like that, because it feels like it it almost feels like even if you don't know to do that from like an artsy standpoint, it's Mm -hmm. data that's there that you're losing if you don't write it down. So people feel the need to write it down, which makes me think from a, just a data collection standpoint, how much of that are we doing now for like artifacts and things like that, that in the end really don't matter, but we don't realize it yet. You know what I mean? Like we, we write down all kinds of attributes about glass artifacts, for example, mm-hmm. and different things. And how much of that 
how much of that really matters? The problem is we don't know. We don't know. I mean, yeah. how many times uh, have we cleaned out very carefully washed pot shirts, <laughs> right. not knowing that 20 years from now, that there's going to be ways of finding out what the residues yeah. were on those and then being able to reconstruct, you know, ancient right. uh, cuisine, for example. Right. I think that it's okay to err on the side of caution and, and record what we can, mm-hmm. even if we don't know what it'll be useful for. But I do think that this, this metadata, the photographic technical metadata probably yeah. isn't useful in an archaeological sense for interpretation or anything else. It is potentially useful for you as an archaeologist that wants to take better pictures to be able to do it, to learn from your earlier ones and take right. better pictures next time. But frankly, m- most archaeologists aren't doing that. You know, the, the, the no. kinds of pictures that you're taking are to just quickly document, get it in the yeah. notebook, and then away you go. Yeah. And the ones who are taking the nicer pictures, you know, again, back to academic archaeology, we take and do, see, one friend of used to call them the happy family pictures, right? <laughs> so you take, you know, all the intact pots that we found mm-hmm. and put a nice backdrop and, yeah, <laughs> and take yeah. a picture of all of them so it's aesthetically pleasing and would make a good slide. That's a totally different kind of photography, sure. actually, even though it's archaeological. <laughs> well, and that takes some some training, some skill and paying attention, right, to get mm-hmm. it done uh, appropriately. Get your lighting down, get everything down so you can... And you're not just taking that to be a pretty po- a pretty photo for the report. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really important to get some of those some of those artifacts that are very diagnostic or typical of the area or the site or, you know, really good examples of of that particular thing to document that so you can show other people right. and, you know, get some other opinions on it or, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah. So the, the mid-ground between these is uh, we've all seen, especially the object photography, that is very nicely set up. Like it's floated on glass. The scale is in there at the right level, you know, so it's propped up. So it's at about the midpoint of, of the object. If the object is mm-hmm. not flat on that glass, the lighting is beautiful. Yeah. In those cases, that metadata is really useful right. for the first few times while well, yeah. you get it all set up. Yeah. And then once you've got it, then you can just sloop, crank sloop, them sloop, out. Just start cranking <laughs> them out. Exactly. And the advantage, too, now with digital is that you can look at the results of those first two few test photos and find out. You don't have to wait a week until you've taken the film to get developed. Right, right. You know, and so that's another big difference. And that's probably then, you know, recording that is probably residue of you would forget. Sure. The shutter speed that you used on a given shot. Yeah. If you don't get those photos back for, you know, two weeks. And that makes total sense, especially the long term. Like you said, you're in the lab, you know, somebody else messes with your camera setup. You know, you got to you got to make sure you get that stuff dialed back in so your photos are consistent. You know, it's interesting, again, from a I didn't know this was going to be a photography podcast, but it's interesting, again, looking at photography in general, like you, you were taking photos you know, back when you said you were a student, you had an artsy kind of photo background a Mm -hmm. little bit, which is probably why you were the photo guy, right? Somebody I used to work with, Michael Ashley, he was also a photo guy. His father was a photographer. So he was a photographer when he worked in grad school on the Chattahoyak site. Mm -hmm. But he, so he was in charge of photographs. And it makes me think, it's interesting how that has flipped. Because back in that time, when photographs were not extremely easy. Film was expensive mm-hmm. and you had a limited number of shots per roll. Yeah. You really had to know what you were doing, get it right, take some good photos because 
you're you're taking photos of in progress archaeological excavations, and they don't have time for you to develop that role. Come back and then say, "I need another shot." Right. By the time you get the film back, they're three levels down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it, there's nobody's waiting for that, right? So you got to get that shot right. You have to know what you're doing. But now we have zero photo training in the field. Mm-hmm. We will let basically anyone take photos of anything. And good thing, the cameras are good enough to basically compensate for our stupidity, but you still find errant shadows in photos. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how many landscape photos I've seen where you're taking a picture of a site overview or something, and it's kind of a pet peeve in mind to have your own shadow in it. Right. Position yourself so your shadow's not in the photo. Mm-hmm. You know, do something. Or your feet, if you're pointing it down or at something like a feature and your toes are in the photo. This isn't Instagram, <laughs> right? Get your feet out of the picture. So, and then, you know, the other photos where somebody used a Sharpie for a scale or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's great if you're just sending it to a friend to say, hey, what's your opinion on this? Right. But don't put that in the site record. No. You know, bring a scale with you. Have right. a proper thing to take it on. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So, but it's interesting how that's flipped from the expert on site taking photos, even if that person doesn't have that much training. Anybody with any training was the expert on site for taking photos mm-hmm. to basically anybody's taking photos now. And I think we've kind of suffered for it by not having that training. Well, it's funny. This is a tangent. It's not technical particularly, but you were talking about the shadows mm-hmm. off air while we were having a conversation before starting recording. I was asking about the, the temperature in the high desert in, yeah. in Nevada in the morning. Yeah. And we used to get up in Yemen at 4.30 in the morning to get to the site. The site was maybe half an hour, mm-hmm. not even 15, 20 minutes from where we were staying. Mm-hmm. But we did that and it would be really frigid in the morning, <laughs> really icy cold. But the reason why we did that was because the dig director, Donald Hansen, he was grand old man of Middle Eastern archaeology, nice. was really persnickety. Yeah. And he wanted us to catch pictures before there were any harsh shadows anywhere. Really? That kind of pre-dawn light? Yep, that pre-dawn light. So we would get to the site, we would dust off everything (laughs) that was supposed to be dusted off, we would brush out our own footprints, and then take the pictures there in the, you know, the 20-minute window that we had of, you know, to document what we had done the day before. But he was really, really (laughs) anal about this. It was good training for me. I was a grad student at the time, and I actually enjoyed doing that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was an experience, and it it was an experience that we all had to be part of, too, because... Mm -hmm. There was one truck to get us all between the uh, where we were staying and the site. So mm-hmm. we would all be up there and we'd all be participating in this photographic exercise. Nice. I'd say even today in the days of, you know, iPhone photography and things like that, there's still nothing like a cloudy day in the field. Mm-hmm. All your photos look great <laughs> and there's no harsh lighting. There's no harsh shadows because in CRM, we, we can't wait till the next morning. Even, no. you know, you got to take the photo and move on. Mm-hmm. And the light is what the light is. But clouds provide nice shade and cooler temperatures and great photos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One disadvantage of working in the high desert Nevada, there's almost never any clouds. If there's clouds, you probably got to get out of the field because it's going to rain soon. Mm-hmm. So that's how it is. All right. Well, let's take another break at the end of this photography segment and (laughs) come back and wrap up this episode. I have no idea what we're going to talk about. So it's much as a surprise to you. It is to me. Back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to episode 153 of the Architect Podcast. And in the... I don't know what it was. Beginning of the last segment, we we were talking a little bit about recording attributes in the context of film and recording, you know, film speed and stuff like that. Just as a kind of a little bit of an aside, I don't know about Android photos, but I'm sure they're recording these data. I just don't know how to find it. Mm -hmm. But I know for iPhones, if you open up a picture and you look at the metadata, the f-stop and shutter speed and all that stuff, they're all in there. It's all in the metadata. So, and it's always some wacky number because it's doing it digitally. Not like the usual numbers you're used to seeing on like a camera with the dial. (laughs) I haven't even looked at it. Oh, I've looked at it before. I know it's there, but I've never looked at it. Yeah. It's always some number in the middle and in between because it's just figuring it out on the fly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's all just insane. And you couldn't recreate that because you can't adjust that. But if you do want to do that, there are ways to turn your digital cameras into your, your smartphone, even into more of a smart DSLR kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. there's lenses you can get, the Olo Clip lenses, and some of the other really nice lenses you can get to attach to your smartphone camera. Difficult sometimes with rugged cases on there, but you know, is what it is. And then apps like ProCam that I use, you yeah. can literally choose your shutter speed and aperture with ProCam. Yep. And then it will faithfully do that and show you what kind of picture you're getting. So. Yeah. So I think I talked about I've I used to use one called Camera Plus. Oh yeah, yeah. This is years ago before I got my DSLR, which is if you listened last time, is the one that died a couple right. years ago. Isn't Camera Plus the one Apple bought? Is it? I thought Camera Plus was the one that first came out with that. Like if you're holding the iPhone landscape, you could use the top volume. Button yes, to it take was. A picture. It, it was the one that did that. But the, but I got it specifically so I could adjust the, the parameters. Yeah. I could adjust yeah. the shutter speed. I could ju- adjust the aperture, and I could adjust the ISO, and yeah. actually control these things, you know, over and expose, underexpose things mm-hmm. in various ways that I couldn't at the time with the built-in Apple camera. Mm-hmm. Now the Apple camera generally does most of what I need. Sure. I don't have that same fine grain level of control, but what I've got is going back to the comment I made earlier about convenience is I just swipe up from the bottom, I hit the camera app, yeah, and I click on what I want in focus and I mm-hmm. move my thumb up or down to change the exposure a little bit and I'm pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it works really well and my iPhone 12 Pro Max camera, I really love the new camera functionality because something I use and that's unique to the 12 Pro line, I think the Max and the, the 12 Pro like regular or whatever it is will mm-hmm. do it. But it's got zoom, uh, digital zoom buttons right on the camera here. But if you put your finger on it, you actually can go widescreen Ooh. and you can go a little wider and then you can just use your finger to slide in and out all the way up to, oh, this is 11 point, uh, 12x digital zoom. Hmm. So it's 2x optical and then up to 12x digital zoom. So, But it's super fluid on how it works. Yeah, so for those of you listening and not watching, which would be everybody this time. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> I was doing that actually. I was trying to explain it, but I was doing it on my phone. <laughs> right, so instead of doing the usual pinch and zoom like, like one often would, yeah. uh, he touched a little button on the side that allowed him to go into the zoom settings and it gave it kind of a dial overlay yeah. that you could just very easily move his thumb up and down to change the zoom. And it told him what the zoom mm-hmm. magnification was. So yeah, very quick and simple. That's looked like something I would get used to It's very fluid. in about three seconds. Yeah, it's very fluid. It works great for video too, because you can zoom in and out while you're on the video. Oh, that's nice. Which is like back in the day, you had to get in like pinch right on your screen. Right. And- 
you're right on your video you're trying to look at, but now I can hold it like a camera naturally and use my thumb on the zoom to just dial it in. And as long as you, it's a little jerky going in, right? It's nice and smooth when you're, you're letting go of the dial and when you're moving the dial around. But the first time that you move it, it's a little bit of a jerk going hmm. in. So if you can edit that out, then, then you're fine. But if you stay on the dial, it's you can just move, even if you stop, once you keep moving again, it's nice and smooth. And mm. it's as smooth as your finger is moving. So if you're jerky, it's going to be jerky, but it's nice and smooth if you're if you're nice and smooth. So, But anyway, I thought that was a pretty cool feature. And I always find myself using the, the telephoto to zoom out for mm-hmm. a nice wide shot. And that yep. really helps out in archaeology. I'm looking forward to using it on a project this year. I didn't have it for the one last year. Because a lot of times, these site overviews, you stand on the edge of a site and you're taking a picture across all your pin flags and just trying to, really trying to capture what the overall setting of this site looks like. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, it would be nicer to just zoom out a little bit. You don't want to walk way far away because that's a different picture than just going a little wider from where you're standing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm looking forward to having those kinds of shots. Of course, when it's not windy out in that area, I've always got my DJI Mavic Mini in my backpack. And those are the <laughs> best side overviews. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're really fun. Yeah, the amount of times we tried things with kites and <sighs> balloons yeah. and yeah. The, the amount of dreaming I had back mm-hmm. in the day of, of bringing a radio control plane and mounting a camera to that. And right. none of that would ever fly, no pun intended. <laughs> and now it's just taken for granted that you could do it with a drone. Yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah. Oh, drones. That, that reminds me of something. Drink, this is totally a drink, drink. <laughs> uh, coffee. I've I don't even Starbucks. have anything. <laughs> that, that, that just reminds me. I was listening to our last episode and mm-hmm. I was telling you about how I'm not really facile yet with the terminology of CRM. Yeah. And then what I said, because I crossed CRM and drones, I said, Part 106 when I meant Section 106 because nice. I was thinking Part 107. FAA. And, <laughs> I didn't yeah. even notice. <laughs> no, that, it just came out of my mouth. And I'm like, afterwards, I was like, that, that didn't sound right. I think I said the wrong thing. And then when I listened to it, I certainly misspoke. <laughs> and I think it's great. I think that that's exactly mm-hmm. the thing because I'm learning right now. And yeah. you know, learning publicly and screwing up publicly doesn't really embarrass me. I mean, maybe a tiny bit. But, yeah. you know, it's 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 good to know that... I don't know and that I can express that I don't know because you mm-hmm. know, I, I think that that kind of like vulnerability about not knowing what you don't know or knowing that there are things that you still have to know and yeah. trying to work at it is, is a fun challenge. And uh, yeah. I've said before, you know, archaeologists tend to be lifelong learners. Mm-hmm. So I think we can probably all understand that same feeling where you use the wrong artifact type name or you right. oh, use Maya when you mean Mayan or vice versa. <laughs> I still get that one wrong. I, I get it. <laughs> I just avoid it. Yeah. I try to as well. It was really hard on the Chichen Itza episode. Did. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's a good point. And I think as a, I think, I feel like I was always a little bit more like, I don't care if I got something wrong, figure mm-hmm. it out and move on. Right. Maybe that's what makes me a half decent podcaster because in podcasting, my God, the number of things I've said that was probably wrong on the air that I didn't catch and just had to leave it in, you know? Yeah. I, I know I do a lot. Yeah. Um, but earlier on when we started with this, I, I know I cringed a little bit every time I heard myself. <laughs> now I, I hear and I laugh and I'm like, oh, I want to mention that next time. <laughs> yeah. Now I just hope somebody else catches it and they send us an email because we don't get enough emails. Even if it's an email that says, you know what, what you said was completely inaccurate. I'm probably going to send you a request for an interview so you can correct us. But oh, yes. Yeah. Because I would love to be wrong to the point where someone wanted to come on the show and correct us. Yeah. <laughs> That's the dream. <laughs> I will gladly be wrong for you. <laughs> we'll be wrong for guests. 
I'm going to get that T-shirt. So, <laughs> so one of the things I want to talk about just as we're, we're finalizing this segment here was really thinking about just going back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the segment and in the last one about recording things on data. You know, mm-hmm. Paul mentioned academic projects. Every time a grad student goes out, it seems like they're they're coming up with a brand new methodology for how to do stuff. And part of that is probably related to, well, you know, original research, original thinking, you got to kind of come up with your own stuff and your, and do your own thing. But man, I really think that that kind of thinking is what makes the fracturing of our data collection that much worse, right? You put these people out in the world that came up with their own thing and they're like, why isn't anybody else doing this? Mm-hmm. And what's really making me think about that is again, you know, WildNote rolled out some new features. Again, I'm not trying to make a commercial for WildNote, but this is a long time coming. I've had to push hard for this, but we're now doing UTMs in uh. the field. We were, we're not a mapping program, but we have one lat long button that I use a lot, and our mm-hmm. photos record metadata too. And when you hit that button just to say where you're at right now, which I use for almost every form, there's something like that on there. It still shows you, shows you the lat long in the field, but once you sync it to the server, the server side is converting it to UTM, mm-hmm. and it's coming back to you. So that's a long time coming. But because of that, I had to go back and retrofit that setting to all the other archaeology forms that we have. Mm-hmm. So I was going through California, going through Nevada, going through all the, the Oregon forms that we have, and now the Utah ones, and then all the standard archaeology ones we have. And just looking at the difference in data collection methodologies across those different states and then the what I call the archaeology standard or the generic intake forms that I have. Now, those mm-hmm. generic forms like the you know tin can, glass, debitage, tool, inventory forms, I basically designed those based on the 18, 19 different states I've worked in across the country. Mm-hmm. What are the different things we've recorded? Trying to put in too much so somebody could download the form and then modify it to their needs, right? Mm-hmm. So you have too much information in there. And you can come back and kind of whittle that down to exactly what you need. But even just looking at that and the number of things I've collected as information, where some companies think it's incredibly important to get dimensions on a shard of glass, and other companies are like, listen, put it in a bag and weigh it. Like, (laughs) you know, we could care less. And then looking at like California's data collection standards and, and the types of information you're supposed to record on different artifacts and features versus Nevada versus Utah versus, you know, other places. It is all over the map. Hmm. Who's right? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As archaeologists, we tend to think, man, we should record as many attributes as we can, but that's not always exactly the answer. You know, we got to really think what's technically and theoretically possible in the future. That was a harder question to answer 80, 90 years ago, mm-hmm. but it's a much easier question to answer now. You know, and what kind of attributes are we recording that are actually going to be useful in the future? I don't really know. You know, I think measurements should be out. I don't think we should be measuring anything if we've got the right kinds of photos and scales. Well, who was it that we had on the podcast maybe a year, year and a half ago that had developed a program for measuring yeah. points based off of, you know, you take a photograph of a whole bunch of them yep. on a surface and we should dig that one up and maybe have the editor put the uh, the link in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was Chris Cameron. His point, that was his Chris pro- Cameron. His program yes. was called Points, I think, or something No, no, like no, that. no, no. That's not the one I'm thinking of. This, Which one was um, it? He developed a, a Python program. Um, oh, geez, I'm forgetting the details right now. This just popped in my head. Oh, it might be coming back to me now. Yes. And so yeah. he, he could measure points 
yeah. based off of a picture of a whole bunch of them, you know, yeah. laid out on the surface and a little bit of training. And then sure. it would, it identified the background versus the points because it mm-hmm. would bump up the contrast basically. And so you could get very accurate measurements of a whole bunch of points all at once from one photograph. Nice. You nice. know, so that was, that was a slick utilization. I really wish I could remember who it was because I, I was, I was jazzed after that, uh, yeah. after that interview. Well, we, we spent so much time measuring projectile points in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to say so much time, but also how accurate are we? We're not using calipers, right? Like when you're trying to get the the width of a point, I've got my little ruler that sits in my, my little metal one with, you know, metric on one side and, and standard on the other. You know, I'll, I'll balance the point on its, on its side, trying to get the width or the <laughs> thickness mm-hmm. of the point. First off, I'm not even doing decimals, right? I'm just going down to the millimeter. And like, how good is that? I mean, if you're leaning one way or the other, where your point is, you could be off by an entire millimeter when you're only recording three of those you're got a pretty huge margin of error, Mm. you know? So what is the utility in coming up with it? Is it just that, you know, 10 millimeters is a lot different than three millimeters and that's what we're looking for? Or is the difference between three or four millimeters really going to matter all that much, you know, when it comes down to these measurements? And I, I know certain points are, you know, longer and shorter than others. But my point is, if you have the, a proper scale in your photo and a photo board that you're taking them on, we should just stop wasting our time with relatively inaccurate measurements by hand. Mm-hmm. You know, just do it off the photo in post if you need it. Because how often do we actually need the measurements anyway? Usually we, we look at the point's shape and we can come up with, you know, what type of point it is. And some points are the same shape but different sizes. That's where the scale comes in handy. But again, we're not looking at it down to the millimeter. We're looking at it. Is it 10 centimeters or is it four centimeters? That's a big difference. Right. No, I actually, I'm going to back up here a little bit and say, oh my goodness, talking about converting between uh, UTM and lat lawn. <laughs> I love that. That aside from being a photographer on projects, I was yeah. surveyor mostly. Yeah. You know, right. So I went on a whole bunch of projects in the Middle East doing surveys for them, mm-hmm. you know, doing their, their, their site maps. Yeah. Actually, that was the name of the product we developed. <laughs> and nice. so my pet project for a number of years now has been redoing our data collection software, the, the software that actually drives a total mm-hmm. station. And lately it's all gelled. So a couple weeks ago I went and I did a topo map of part of our backyard mm-hmm. and it came out nice. I was, it gave me a chance to play with QGIS and find a few little things I needed to change in my own software so that it worked better as right. you actually used it. But one of the first things I did in there is when you set up a, a surveying station, Mm-hmm. You could set it up in either UTM or Latlon, and it converts automatically to the other. Nice, nice. <laughs> so you just made me feel very smart. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. You know, one of the things that was a challenge for the developers that I had to tell them was when people are recording their latitude, longitude on a smartphone or tablet, whether it's Android or, or iOS, doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. The datum matters. And the datum for these is usually WGS84. Mm-hmm. That's what almost all these mobile devices, yep, yep, yep. even like you, you buy a Garmin and the at REI, it's probably going to be set by default to WGS84. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, those have the ability to change the datum and the coordinate system and right. you know how that's based. But I told him, I said, typically, you can't just convert from 
lat long to UTM, you have to be cognizant of your datum. Right. What datum are you converting from and which one are you converting into? Because archaeologists will generally use NAD 83. NAD 27 is what a lot of the older topos are in. And if you find any archaeological sites recorded in the mid to early 80s or before, they're almost always recorded in NAD 27. And the difference between NAD 27 and NAD 83 is almost 200 meters in some cases. Wow. So you could be way the heck off. If you're out... I've had this problem. You learn the hard way when you're out looking for a previously recorded site and you're like, my God, we're looking for these huge features. Where is it? And it turns out it's 200 meters to the northeast because you were in your GPS was in NAT83 when your coordinates were in NAT27. What we found out, and I didn't actually know this, they're converting from lat long straight to UTM because the difference between WGS84 and NAT83 is apparently not very much. And even out to... Like, it's the same out to a couple decimal places. Oh, really? Yeah. And then when you start getting out a little farther, it starts diverging a little bit. Hmm. But that's close enough. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, because you're not recording with a sub-meter GPS anyway. You're recording with your iPhone. (laughs) (laughs) So, you're already off by three meters. (laughs) Yeah, no. You started making me feel a little stupid there again, going, oh, I just did everything to WGS84, because that's what I've always (laughs) used. Yeah. Oh, no, I have to put converters to the... Oh, no, I guess I'm fine. Sounds like you're okay. Yeah, Yeah, sounds sounds like like you're okay. okay. Yeah. (laughs) So, and I, I, that was actually news to me. I've always changed when I, when I could, I've always changed whatever I had. In fact, I used GPS tracks, an app on my phone to do some recording. Actually, my iPad works mm-hmm. on my phone too, but I've used that to do actually some, some course recording of things before where I didn't need submeter mm-hmm. and I paid extra to have the datums to switch it to NAT 83, right. not realizing how close it was to WGS 84. Hmm. So probably could have just kept it in that and converted in post if I had to. Yeah, yeah, probably. So, yeah. But that's uh, that's also just as a good point. I'm sure that everybody listening to this knows that. But if sure. you're working in any place that has its own its own yeah. coordinate system, its own its own datum, you know, and the maps that you have, the base maps, the topo maps that you're using, you have mm-hmm. to be very aware that your <laughs> that your data collection, that your GPS units yeah. are keyed to the same datum. Yeah. And get, that's very common around the world that they'll have right. their own Especially when you get to the more extreme latitudes, yeah, you'll often end up with different. So I, I, I'm pretty sure that Scandinavian countries have their own, and I'm pretty sure Scotland has its own. I think uh, almost every country if, has their own. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, whether or not they still use them is the question. True, true. When they first did their, their you know geological or you know topographic geographical surveys, you know they recorded them in something. But yeah, what are they using now? Right, right, right. Yeah, interesting thing. The project that you're coming to work with us on. I've, I've worked on this same property for the last 10 years now. And I found this out last year for the first time because normally we were with our representative on the project and she would just take us out to the sites we needed to survey. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at previously recorded sites every single time. So it was very you know cut and dry. Mm-hmm. But now we're actually doing field survey out there. And we've, I found out that the this whole property has their own coordinate system. Wow. They've mapped everything in their own their own system that they use in an Esri database and they have to convert it when they send it out to other people. And when they get information in, they have to convert from whatever we're using, usually NAT eighty three, to their coordinate system. Oh my goodness. They're still using like UTMs and stuff, but I, I mean, when I say coordinate system, I mean datum. They're yeah. using their own datum. Mm-hmm. Had no idea. There's close to probably a million acres out there that they manage. So it's a big area. Mm-hmm. Maybe actually probably probably a bit more than that. And I don't know why they came up with their own datum and system to use, but they do. So it might've been depending when they started. I mean, when I started working at Petra in 94, mm-hmm. we just had a site datum. Yeah. And we had site North. Right. And then by, yeah, I think 
2000, there was a bigger server they went through the area. And at that point, then we could have real GPS. Mm. And so I converted all our prior years, northings and eastings. They had to be rotated a few degrees and they had, to, <laughs> I think, like three and a half degrees or something. I can't remember. Yeah. And shifted a bunch to put, right. the, to put our site on the map, literally, yeah. that everything else was mapped on. I mean, it was a fun little mathematical challenge, mm-hmm. but... It was because we started before we could tie it into any bigger grid. Right, right. Yeah, and you always got to be cognizant of north, too, because if you go back far enough, magnetic north keeps changing, right? So if they use true north, you know, that's one thing. But if magnetic north keeps adjusting, and if you go back two, three decades, magnetic north is very much different. Mm-hmm. There's a number of runways I just heard because I'm, yes. I'm, I'm in the aviation community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're changing their runway numbers mm-hmm. because they're off enough that the numbers aren't start, starting to not make sense. Because <laughs> yep. usually the two numbers at the beginning of a runway are the two numbers, the first two numbers in the heading of the runway. So if it's facing, you know, 180 degrees, it's going to be runway 18. That's 118, you know, and that's how you tell from a distance. If you're flying over the runway, you know what to point your heading on. And that's just from the old school days, you know, but they yep. still do that. They have the numbers on there. That's how they identify the runways. So, yeah, pretty crazy. All right. Well, I didn't think we had a topic, but we've had a pretty good show, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Conversation about nothing. That's right. I mean, we're in the city where that really was originated with Seinfeld. So oh, there, there we go. go. Is the cafe... I don't know anything about New York City. Is the yeah, Seinfeld it's, uh, diner it's like, No, no. It's up like a block from where I live. Oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Paul. It's always good to talk to you in person. And as usual, if anybody has any comments or wants to come on the show or anything like that, just contact us through the show notes or Twitter or wherever you found the episode and leave a comment and definitely email us and tell us all the things we got wrong on this episode. Oh, please. So, yeah. Maybe keep a running tally. I know, right? <laughs> See which one of us did worse or better, depending on how you want to count it. One is not going to win, but the email that shows us two or more things that we got wrong will put you in a raffle to get a lifetime APM membership. How's that? <laughs> so, yeah. But you got to cite your sources. You know, we didn't, but we're the hosts. So there you go. Yeah, it's good to be the king. <laughs> it's good to be the king. So, all right. Well, again, thanks, everybody. Thanks, thanks Paul. Chris. Yep. Hey, everybody. uh, We're here face to face, but we are socially distanced. Absolutely. We're both vaccinated. And as soon as we go out of this room, we're both going to be wearing our masks. And we're going to keep on washing our hands. Yeah. Even though we're a little less worried about surfaces now than we were a year ago. But but still good practice. That's science. We learned. Yeah. 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 So, and New York City is strangely empty. Like there's practically nobody on the streets, it seems. It's crazy. So I've never been here before, but of course I've seen all the movies and pictures everybody else has. And my brother-in-law who's walking us around, he's just like, yeah, it's totally empty. I'm sure you've noticed the same thing. Uh, Less so actually in my... In, in your area? In my, yeah, in my area. That well, he, he did say the neighborhoods where people live. Yeah. Like it all kind of seems the same because everybody's still there. Well, last summer it dropped way down and there was kind of an... People a, living a, outside the city? Yeah, people moved outside of the city. There yeah. were parking spaces and there was a kind of edge to the city. Oh, yeah. But then that all softened up again and now yeah. it's very similar. The only real difference from two years ago is that everybody's wearing a mask as they walk around. Sure, sure. Well, speaking of, wear a mask and... Wash your hands. There you go. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. 
The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Fro.